Hi, I'm Greg Schaefer, and welcome to the Virtual CISO Moment. We've got a very special guest to wrap up 2023. Keith Price joins us today. He is the Chief Security Officer for National Highways. Keith, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Greg. Thanks for having me. Uh, that intro music has got me pumped. <laughs> yeah, I, I when I found it, I was looking for some variety, some different stuff. And when I landed across this one, of course, it's one of those that you can grab out there and you just got to put the license up and everything's fine. And I'm like, yeah, I like this. It's like a little bit raw, edgy. Let's get everything, the blood flowing. I'm, so I'm ready to rock, Greg. I'm ready to rock. Well, let's rock through your history, starting with the question of why did you get into cyber? I mean, it's like, it's a difficult field and it, uh, yet, yet a lot of people do enjoy it. And then kind of step us through your entire career, including why I'm wearing this hat. Oh, yeah, sure. Well, the why is uh, accidental. Uh, I'm kind of privileged in a way because, you know, in the Air Force, I started out uh, actually, I started out as a munitions specialist. We call ammo, and uh, mm -hmm. I was sent, to, sent over here to England in 1991. And I was at RF Bentwaters working A10s and building munitions for them. And then a couple months in, <clears throat> they asked, "Is anyone good with computers?" And I raised my hand. Next thing I know, I'm being sent off to Ramstein to learn how to become a mainframe operator for a CASB system, which is how we tracked all our war reserve uh, materials in the Air Force. And so that's how I started out in IT. Uh, so very much accidental. And then over the 20 years in the Air Force, I went from working what we would class traditional IT roles as a, as a network engineer, as a server administrator, all, all the time staying ammo, but uh, being the ammo IT guy and then eventually moving off into architecture and security again, yeah. I just I just want to opine that I think it's okay for there to be an ammo guy working in IT as opposed to for an IT guy working in ammo. <laughs> just well, and that's exactly perfectly put. And the reason being is, you know, ammo, we're always on the far side of the base or even sometimes outside the base. And the IT folks, that to be quite honest, they just didn't want the hassle of having to go out there. So it was easier for them to give me and others OJT and training to make us work group managers, uh, uh -huh. we went through some different iterations, but to know how to do the IT uh, for the munitions area. So, and that included sometimes the nuclear storage areas. So some very exciting things in, there, in that world. But uh, hmm. yeah, very privileged because I just kind of fell into it. And then when I left the Air Force after uh, retiring in 2011, I went back to school full time using my GI Bill and got two degrees in cybersecurity to help me bolster a bit of the knowledge that I'd learned hands-on to become a better sort of leader in cyber and uh, learning things like privacy. But then my biggest uh, educational experience post Air Force was learning how security, InfoSec, and cyber drive business and how it enables business versus, you know, the military way was Oh, you want to do something uh, cool and exciting? Uh, this regulation says no, you can't, and that was the end of it. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So, and then five years with the Army as a as a GS uh, over in Stuttgart, and then here at Molesworth, and then uh, the last seven years, private sector with uh, Dark Matter in the Emirates for a year, Deloitte during COVID, and then the last two years prior to my recent joining of Highways, I was a v virtual CISO with a Vision Pharma Group. Uh, and they had to suffered a ransomware attack from the Conti gang. And so I was brought in to help recover and then build the InfoSec function over the last two years. And then, and then that's, 
that was for um, National Highways? No, that was for Vision Pharma Group. I've been oh, with okay. Highways now for just three months as their new chief security officer. Oh, okay, okay. I thought I thought I mis misinterpreted that. I thought you were working as a virtual CISO for uh, National Highways and helping them through ransomware, and then that's what led to you being there full time. But they're completely unrelated. Yeah, no. When we arranged this uh, podcast, uh, it was when I was with Envision still uh, quite a few months ago, and so it's since since uh, joining Highways, I'm, I'm now a proper full time. You know, I'm a <laughs> Full-time CISO or chief security officer because I have all the security responsibilities. But, uh, yeah, those two years with Envision Pharma was all as a virtual CISO. Excellent. Well, I mean, I don't focus on this on just virtual CISOs. It just, that just happens to be the name historically from when I started this almost six years ago. So sure. um, I haven't been doing the talking all this time with different people for six years, but uh, um, only been doing that for a little bit less than two. But anyway... I know yep. you've got a lot of experience, particularly when the virtual CISO field. I, I know that you probably had some experience in small and mid-sized businesses. That's what virtual CISOs work on. But even the experience all the way from the military through to national highways will definitely give you an informed perspective on answering this question. And that question that I'm going to ask you in just about 20 seconds is, what do you think is the most significant threat or threats to small and mid-sized businesses cyber-wise um, today. And I'll give you a little bit of time to think about it. We'll be right back. The virtual CISO moment is brought to you by VCSO Services, a leading provider of quality and experienced virtual chief information security officers for small and mid-sized businesses. Check them out at vcsoservices.com. All right, bills are paid so we can get back to talking. So what do you think is uh, one of the most significant threats to small and mid-sized businesses with regards to cybersecurity? Well, I can give you my ex my uh, examples. Um, starting out where I built a virtual CISO practice with Dark Matter over the Emirates, and we had a mix of clients, but uh, my focus was around the SMB market there in the Middle East. And uh, across all the industries and across all of my customer base, it was the lack of understanding by your average employee within the business about what cyber threats were you know currently existing typically through emails you know we talk about phishing emails and so forth but they evolve very quickly you know they evolve into uh you know uh use of ai tools to do uh you know voice phishing uh attacks um uh, you know video uh attacks and so forth so to educate your employee base, for me, has always been the greatest return on investment from a virtual CISO perspective. And most recently with Envision, uh, I spent a lot of time with the employees at Envision. Uh, I would have monthly cyber coffee events, as an example, where I would speak to them for about five minutes of each session about a recent cyber attack that made the news and describe to them what that meant, you know, sort of in lay people's terms that they could understand. And then I would open the floor up for about 30, 45 minutes to them to ask questions about anything. And it typically involved talking about, you know, the safety and security of their teenagers, their parents and grandparents using things like online banking, how best they could support them. And I found that if I helped and showed true interest in, in helping them secure and make their family safe, that that translated into their business lives quite well. Um, and 
And it, from the beginning of the cyber coffee events where I had sort of 10, 20 participants to two years later when I left, it was in the hundreds. And Envision is a is a 1,500-person company. So I, I, would say, I would chalk that one up to success. And again, it's a very grassroots effort. It doesn't cost a lot of money. And uh, really, it's just about showing empathy uh, to the average employee on what do they need to know to keep themselves safe and secure. Yeah, I think that that's so great to to involve the like the personal aspect that that really is a hook to get them to to understand or want to understand. Did you have any resistance from your um, higher ups, from the C-suite or the board of directors, as far as wanting to implement that sort of grassroots program, or were they completely in on it, or how did that go? No, they. I mean, they were completely in, and I, part of it, uh, you know, I got to admit. You know, they had just suffered a ransomware attack. So, you know, in security, we have a joke where, you know, pre-breach, your budget is small. <laughs> and mm -hmm. then post-breach, you have a blank check. And what had happened was uh, before they brought me in as a consultant, as a virtual CISO, they just went out and bought one of everything. You know, they just went and spent tons of money on all these cyber uh, technologies, you know, thinking that it was going to help make them more secure. And in some ways it did. But... You, I'm sure you know this, you know, quite often companies uh, will go out and spend tons of money on technology and not utilize it properly. So one of my yeah. first jobs was to go in and help trim the fat and then also properly utilize what we had. So when I turned the discussion towards, let's just talk to our employees, let's just make them more aware. And the, and the question was, okay, Keith, what's that going to cost now? And I says, well, nothing but my time. And, uh, you know, and it's part of the strategy. So they were very interested in that because I wasn't coming to them asking for more money. I was giving them a pragmatic solution. Yeah. And that's always when we have the reputation just in general in information security of being the the office of no, so to speak. And, and really, you know, we joke about that, but it gets a lot deeper and in, into what the real problem is. And the real problem is there is that we should be giving um, everybody of our of our constituents, we should be giving them some ideas and options on how to solve a problem, not just to say, no, you can't do something. Because ultimately, business is going to do business, right? And like water, it's going to find the uh, best way to travel. And if you try to block here, it's going to go down this way or something like that. So uh, excellent. I mean, I think that that is the best approach for, um, for doing that. I would totally agree. But what would you say... Um, what, how, how would you sell that in general to small and mid-sized businesses? Well, so it's about, it's about that pragmatic approach. It's about not selling it as a security uh, function. It's about, so some colleagues, uh, are, you know, are starting to rethink security. Uh, so Greg Vandergast is quite well known for this in the industry. He talks about using security as a quality initiative, as a safety initiative. You know, if we could just uh, do the hygiene right, if we could just patch and implement, you know, proper controls, quality controls that actually drive and enable business to do better, we're inherently making ourselves, you know, as a business more secure. And again, uh, Brent Deterning is another gentleman who is very pragmatic, cost-minded CISO who says, you know, we should be challenging all these uh, vendors on, you know, can, can your product really uh, secure, you know, can your product really 
does it really use AI, you know, or is it just a, a case of, you know, you're producing marketing materials, you're producing FUD? Because if you have a good CISO who comes into the executive and the executive may just be one person, you know, it might just be in this instance, a small business. It's one, it's a family owned business. You want somebody as a virtual CISO, you want to go in and say to them, look, I'm not here to try and spend tons of your money that you don't have. But what I want to do is implement things that don't cost anything that we should be doing anyways. It might be your IT provider doing the right thing around patching and hygiene and updates. That'll get us half the way there, right? So again, it's about using security as a way to drive and enable the business. And also eventually you can then differentiate yourself from the competition, which will then enable you to win more business. Yeah, absolutely. Because a lot of times competition is going to particularly um, uh, <coughs> some MSPs. I wouldn't say that this is ubiquitous, but they're they're in the sure. market to try to sell tools, and sure. they'll come with the idea of like, hey, this tool will will help you do everything in slice spread at the same time. I'm always of the opinion that <coughs> you were talking about vendors. If a vendor comes to me and says, "Well, this tool can do this," um, I'll start out by asking them two questions, how and how in my environment. And if they can't answer the second one first, then you haven't even gone through the whole process of understanding at the very high level what my environment might be, because banking is going to be different from healthcare is going to be different from. Um, but it's not always spending money, which is going to be the, uh, the the way in. Find that with startups a lot is like they're going to try to find the the best way to keep that cost down. Yeah. So, yeah, for me, for me, technology should, you know, automate things, make life easier or do things securely quickly, more quickly than a human could. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's uh, security operations center, email security and endpoint, you know, endpoint protection, you know, AV solution, EDR. That's kind of it from a technology perspective. I know there's tons more out there, but the rest of it should be uh, in, invested in your people and processes. Yeah, I agree. That's the, the basics. Get that done and then work on the folks. And, and well, I, we talked a little bit about this. We talked a little bit about the Air Force and that that's yeah. how you started out. And I generally try to ask this from all folks that I have on who have transitioned from the military to uh, cyber. But you're kind of like a bridge there because you were actually doing it in the military. Um, what are some of the um, what's like a, a skill set that that seems to be uniquely military or at least very prevalent in the military that you have found has benefited you in the civilian world? Uh, it's definitely leadership. It's the ability to lead teams. So when I was 19 years old, I was leading small teams of four people, right? As a 19 year old. And I had great non-commissioned officers. I had great officers that, you know, developed me, developed that skill set. And it's not something that people are really bored with. You know, there's mm -hmm. the saying, natural born leader. Eh, okay, there's a few examples maybe in history, but really good leaders are developed. And in the military, that's one place that they excel is developing us, developing us as leaders from a very early age. And then throughout our career, expanding that leadership responsibility to include things like budgetary responsibility, development, you know, training. Um, and, and, but for me, it was about taking care of my people. Because mm -hmm. if I could take care of their quality of life, you know, in the Air Force, we had MWR, Morale, Welfare, and Recreation. Recreation yeah. Right. And I was the unit MWR sergeant, right? I was the guy 
if you had a problem, you know, if you had a, a an issue in the family, a concern, you know, an illness, I was the guy who came and helped the first sergeant deal with it. Also, on the other side, if we had a barbecue or something like that, I was the guy that organized it, right? <laughs> so it's about looking after your people's mental health, mental well-being, uh, and quality of life. And if I found as a leader, if you do that, they take care of the mission because they mm -hmm. know and trust you as a leader that you've got their backs. So qualities of a good leader. It sounds like that one of one of the qualities would be uh, empathy and taking care of your people. What are some other other qualities of a good leader that you learned from being in the Air Force? Well, one I'll tell you one that I didn't learn. And one that I didn't learn while being in the Air Force was don't try to fight every battle. And I was that guy. You know, I was the guy that, uh, you know, if the squadron commander, you know, if, so, if we had an alcohol related incident on a Friday night, and the squadron commander says, everybody come in in uniform at 5 a.m. I was the guy to say, no, I'm not having my people come in because they weren't. They didn't have the alcohol-related incident. You know, I was always the guy pushing back and saying, oh. So almost to a fault in my military career, I did not learn that sometimes you have to lose a battle, right, to be seen as a leader who could be a team player across all levels. And so it impacted my promotion potential. Uh, I, only, I only made it to tech sergeant, you know. Uh, and that's something that I learned after leaving the Air Force, that I should have been more empathetic to my leaders as well as those that I led. So kind of like pick your battles in a way, or at least yes. understand not just, if I'm understanding what you're saying, it's not just your world, it's the entire world. And you've got to keep in mind the needs of the entire world as well. That's right, because the mission, you know, we're a cog in the wheel of the mission. And sometimes those senior leaders, they have the 30,000-foot view that I, I was lacking, right? I, I missed the empathy for those senior leaders quite often in my career. So I'll tell you how I learned that, because you just triggered a memory in me. Did you see the light bulb <laughs> go off over my head? Um, I was a network manager for Middle Tennessee State University at the time. So I had, I, had, I had just come from being a network engineer and into this new position. Now I'm, now I'm supervising people. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm in charge of the network, large university and all that, feeling pretty good, but also feeling pretty good about my knowledge about networking. Because like you, I kind of grew up like, uh, with that sort of stuff. I started with networking myself. Um, and, I, and, I, and I was very confident in what I could do. And we had this one project, I think we were putting in a horse arena, actually, and, and we had to connect it back to the campus. It was remote. Yeah. And um, I worked very hard to figure out a way on how to make that work. And I told our planning department about that and said, well, and then they got back to the CIO or the director of IT who said, well, Greg said that IT can make this work. Well, um, and then she, she came to me. And said, what did you tell them? And I said, well, no, we can make the network work. It's like, it's fine. And she's like, well, that's not all of IT. I'm like, well, from a networking perspective, I can make this work. And yeah. she said, you, you have to understand that you are IT. You're a part of it. And just because you can get one thing to work doesn't mean ubiquitously we can do the whole thing. That was my light bulb there. And I'll tell you, it was a humbling moment because I, had, I wanted to try to push through what I thought was my view. Um, so yeah, thank you for that little light bulb moment there. Yeah, no worries. I mean, I think that is so important though for people to understand that uh, the best 
the best, maybe most effective leaders, and maybe not even just leading, but also just in whatever it is you do, to have the awareness of so much beyond what it is that you're doing specifically. Yeah. So again, you know, if I was to win a battle this week, it could actually have a negative impact on the rest of the year for the team. Mm-hmm. So you have to have that. It's almost like playing chess. You have to think sort of four moves ahead in a way. And again, it's also about if you constantly feel or if you constantly try to win, people are going to see you as not a very good partner, right? So because they see you as selfish, even though mm. you're doing it for your people, they see you as doing it for just you and your team and, and damn everybody else, right? And that's not a great place to be as you, especially as you rise up through the ranks, you know, of leadership and get to the executive where there's an expectation, like in my current role within the highways as the chief security officer, uh, one of the first things I heard a lot was cyber thinks they're special. Cyber thinks that they're rock stars and they're prima donnas and they're Go, not are part we? of well, some of us are for sure. Some of us are. But I report to the chief digital information officer and he says, you're part of my world. You're part of digital services. Right. And I said, I agree. I fully agree. And so something that I have to do is to indicate to my team through my actions that I'm interested in bringing us back into the fold of IT as a as a willing partner in the success of IT and not necessarily damn everybody else, security is going to win, if that makes sense. I think it makes great sense. And I think that for the folks listening to this, particularly those in cyber who are thinking about what's the best way to make that move up. I mean, we see this all the time, like on LinkedIn, for example, that it is a very competitive field out there. And a lot of times people are just uh, spraying resumes out in different positions. And you have to be able to be able to differentiate yourself and to show how you differentiate yourself and understanding that. I think that there are some people that go in their career and they never actually get to that point. So um, I think that that's absolutely great advice, Um, but it doesn't take away from the fact though, too, that anything that we do in cyber is uh, or can be rather stressful. Um, I think that it's a huge problem in the field. I think that, um, I tend to spend more time trying to advise folks now, it seems like, that you got to take a step away. You got to do something that you can't get totally sucked into it. You got to take care of yourself before you can take care of others in your family or take care of your your security for your position. So um, I always encourage people to to do something outside of cyber to decompress. What's something that you do to get away from the stresses of cyber? Oh, well, I I enjoy music. Uh, I sort of self-taught with guitar and I'm learning drums now. Um, I've, I've never seen a fat drummer, so I figured I could learn an <laughs> instrument and uh, get some physical activity and get in shape as well because COVID has not been kind to me on the weight front. But um, I also have a, I have a lot of kids, uh, so I spend a lot of time with my kids uh, doing what they like to do. And quite often we'll, we'll go traveling for days out as a family up to the beach or off to the forest, you know, for some walks and things like that. So decompressing for me is all about, uh, you know, spending time with my family. Uh, But also I enjoy mentoring uh, folks. I enjoy mentoring, especially veterans. And I've become more active now in the British military 
uh, helping British veterans get into uh, IT and cyber. And, it, and it's to your point, you know, uh, stressed out and, uh, you know, burned out cyber people will make more mistakes. And so it's in our best interests, again, to look after the morale and welfare of our teams. And one of the reasons, again, another reason why I really uh, wanted to join highways was I find in the public sector and in the military, you know, we, 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 we work hard and play hard, but also there's a little bit more work-life balance in the military, in the public sector than in the private sector. And it's uh, something that I, I think, you know, we may not have the best salaries in the world in the in the public sector, but at least we respect uh, people's off work time a little bit more than in the private sector. The private sector, when I was, it seemed we were always connected. You know, yeah. I would get emails and messages, weekends and nights and holidays, and even when I was on vacation. Whereas in the public sector, there's a little more respect for people's uh, private time. And I can definitely second that the time that I was with Middle Tennessee State, for example, it's like uh, certainly was not paid the same as in the private sector, but the lifestyle. Uh, that's why people choose that sort of uh, that sort of position. So what future plans do you have? Are you um, what song are you learning on the uh, on the drums right now in the air tonight by Phil Collins? No, I'm, a, so I'm going straight hard mode because I'm a big tool fan and Danny Carey is my idol. Now, anyone who knows Tool and Danny Carey knows that's not entry-level drumming. <laughs> so I don't pretend that I will ever be at Danny Carey's level, but I love ch just chugging along to some Tool. I'm a big fan of Iron Maiden. Uh, you know, as I said, your intro song really got me pumped up for this uh, podcast. Uh, and where I worked in Molesworth, uh, there's a village nearby where Bruce Dickinson went to school from Iron Maiden. So I'm a big fan of heavy metal. And uh, so for me, it's all about just getting in there and getting lost into the music. And, it, and also, again, it helps me de-stress. I have a practice pad right next to my uh, computer that I could just literally, you know, five, 10 minutes between a meeting, shift over and just have a whack five, 10 minutes on my practice pad. And it really does help me sort of de-stress even during the workday. Do you, uh, do you ever compose anything? Uh, I did in my early days. So in the, in the air force days, I was part of a few different, uh, rock and metal bands, uh, playing guitar and we composed some original things. This is back in the nineties. Uh, but, uh, I honestly, I don't know where those tapes are. Those back in the day of tapes. And, uh, <laughs> I wish I knew where they were, but, uh, no, I, I haven't composed anything in, in probably 20 something years. Well, if you ever think about composing a new intro that that can even be more <laughs> blood boiling than than uh, than what I have now, I'd be interested. But other than that, um, you know, I, I think that that's great. I, I I do a little bit of guitar myself off and on. I'm really not not all that stellar. I, I did open mics like 20 years ago and I tried to compose yeah. a few things and um, realized that that was just another reason why I had to stay in IT. So <laughs> Keith, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on this, our last episode of 2023. Thank you, Greg. And I just want to say to everybody, thank you also for your support. Since I started to do the interview format back in March of last year, I've done a 116 of these and I thoroughly enjoy it. I hope you enjoy it as well too. I like to try to get people's stories out and I'm looking forward to um, a, a continuing this in 2023. Already booked through June, so it's 
some people are liking it. So again, thank you everybody for your support. And until 2024, stay secure.